to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real, and I'm grateful for the chance to be with you today. We're going to continue our series today of Chris Jensen's Obscure Mormon Doctrine. I am in Chapter 11, the Bible, and uh, there's a few things out of the book I want to share, and then a few notes here from papers, and, uh, and we'll go from there. Chapter 11, the Bible. The first section I wanted to talk about, he talks about how it's imperfect, and incomplete. And I should note here again, just a, a preface, we've tried to say this kind of throughout each of these episodes. Our goal is not to determine whether Mormonism is true or not. You get to figure that out. What we're trying to do is have conversations around what is the most rational way to see these issues and Mormonism at large. And so Mormonism has lots of truth claims that hinge on certain facts or certain historical events happening a certain way. And when we dive into those issues, we recognize that those issues are really messy. There are lots of things that can be brought up that kind of hurt our uh, Mormonism's impositions on the, uh, regarding those truth claims. And what we're trying to do is to feel into how absurd these beliefs are that Mormonism requires you to have in order for it to hold up and to be true. And so whenever you're confronted with an issue and there are uh, possible ways that it could work out, like, oh, the Book of Mormon is a fraudulent document created by Joseph Smith, or it is an ancient record off of gold plates delivered by at the hands of an angel Moroni uh, that were written and inscribed in Reformed Egyptian by uh, prophets um, in the ancient world who came over from the old world. And you start to go like, which one of those two requires more allowances, more conjecture, which has beliefs that require you to believe in things that are absurd. And so we're simply trying to weigh out uh, whether Mormonism holds up rationally to a rational person with a critical thinking mind. And so in this episode, we're going to tackle the Bible. And the first section he talks about is it's imperfect and incomplete. Um he, he says here, he says, Joseph Smith taught that it contains errors. Quote, I believe the Bible as it read when it came from the pen of the original writers, ignorant translators, careless transcribers, or designing and corrupt priests have committed many errors. It is also missing important parts from sundry revelations which had been received. It was apparent that many points touching the salvation of men had been taken from the Bible or lost before it was compiled. And, and I'll simply say there is some agreement here. There are lots of books mentioned in the Bible that we don't have today. Like they're mentioned in one book. So like Deuteronomy will mention a certain book, but we don't have it today. We don't have know where it's at. We don't have access to it. But one of the things that Mormons don't do very well, nor do their leaders when they frame theology around these things, is to be aware of biblical criticism and the biblical research that's been done. The idea that uh, that the church, when I say that, I mean the Catholic church or going all the way back to like the councils and creeds and and whatever was organized after after Jesus died and and resurrected. Um, it, the idea that there were lots of things taken out um, that doesn't really fit the research. Now again, there are books missing, um, and we don't really know exactly why that is. Uh, but what we do know is that there 
the books that uh, once we have kind of a record of these books existing, they you know, there are creeds and councils that kind of vote certain ones out, but there also is um, an effort to preserve these writings. And there were a lot of people throughout the ages who worked really hard to keep these records in existence. Um, but again, not a, not a big point there. Um, moving on, he says about the Book of Mormon, he goes, uh, he mentions this thing. He says, but the Book of Mormon prophesied that the lost material would be restored through other records that the Lord would bring forth, other books in LDS canon. Now, Joseph Smith gave us the Book of Abraham and the Book of Moses, but I, I, I would just say here that there's no way that the modern church is going to ever give you anything else. Now, I can't really promise that. You can't really promise it will. What I can do is say, like, I would easily put $5,000 down, and we can let this prophecy go out for a 1,000 years if you want. But there will never be a Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saint prophet who ever attempts again to translate ancient records. So while early Mormon uh, ideas contained the thought that that, um, future LDS leaders, prophets, seers, and revelators would give us things like the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon or the Book of Joseph, which was supposed to be part of the Book of Abraham in the Egyptian papyri, I'm just going to tell you that that's never going to happen. And, uh, and if anybody wants to take me up on that, we can create a trust fund. We can put the money in. And then after a thousand years, whatever money accumulates there, uh, we can both pick some cause that it goes to uh, if human beings are even around then. Um, but happy to do that. Um, Joseph Smith translation. Uh, Joseph Smith worked on solving the above problems. Now, again, he's talking about all of this missing and corrupted stuff out of the Bible. Um, Joseph Smith uh, worked on solving the above problems by revising and restoring the King James Bible. The revision is called the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible or the inspired version of the Bible. The church uses the King James Bible because Smith never completed his revisions. There is this idea in Mormon uh, parlance, in Mormon doctrine, in Mormon theology, that the Bible was corrupted, pieces were lost, and that Joseph Smith came along and through revelation uh, restored the Bible, or at least worked towards restoring the Bible to its pure, perfect form. What we've learned in recent years deeply contradicts that. What we now know, even coming out of BYU, you can do a Google search and for uh, Adam Clark's commentary, you can look up Thomas Wayman. He's the professor at BYU and Haley Lamont. Uh, she was the student who was working on the project with Professor Wayman. And what you will discover is that rather than the idea that has been perpetuated generation after generation in Mormonism, that Joseph Smith was restoring the Bible to its ancient form in its pure and perfect uh, form, you will uh, see that Joseph Smith now, even the church acknowledges that he heavily plagiarized from uh, Adam Clark's commentary And Adam Clark's commentary is a contemporary commentary to Joseph Smith. It's a Bible commentary. So it's what people wanting to understand the Bible better, they would have went and bought this uh, additional 
book written by Adam Clark, and he, as a scholar, was shedding light on lots of issues and ideas and definitions and interpretations in the Bible. Um, we now know with 100% certainty that Joseph Smith plagiarized Adam Clark's commentary and used substantial information out of it to form his revised Bible, his inspired Bible translation. What this means is that Joseph Smith, rather than restoring an ancient text to its ancient pure form, is actually stealing ideas from somebody in his milieu, and he is imposing those ideas as if he's restoring an ancient text to ancient form. Folks, you can go look that up yourselves. I I would suggest you do so if there's any doubt on your end that that's the case. You will see there are interviews done with Haley Lamont. You will see there are interviews done with Thomas Wayman. You will see that um, BYU has articles on its website uh, that have to do with the research that was done. Um, but, and again, you're always going to hear, if you go listen to the Thomas Wayman interviews, you're going to hear somebody who sort of defends the church or the theological position, but notice he'll have to add allowances and conjecture in order to get there. Making uh, his apologetic reconciliation more irrational than Haley Lamont, who has since left the church and stopped believing um, because she would just acknowledge like, hey, the church told us it was this. Um, Joseph Smith told us it was this. And in reality, it was something else. And every time the church is confronted with something else other than what they told people, then new conjecture and new allowances have to be added, such as the book of Abraham for the idea that we had to create a catalyst theory. And the reason we had to create a catalyst theory is we had to have a way in which to frame the translation of the book of Abraham that looked exactly like what the critics said was a fraudulent translation. And so all of the outward observances of the book of Abraham that critics came along and said, hey, none of this adds up. Um, it, it seems as though the most reasonable rational conclusion is that Joseph Smith made up the book of Abraham, claiming that these Egyptian papyri were the book of Abraham text, and they weren't. And what apologists do is then come in later and go, oh, you know what? There's some truth to what you're saying. So we're going to create a new theory called the catalyst theory, which will look exactly like your theory outwardly. It'll require us to add some more allowances and conjecture. Um, but at that point, we will have a faithful view that accepts the same outward appearance that the critics uh, are pushing that seems to be true. Um, so there's that. Uh, let's see here. Uh, prophesied of Smith's coming. One important change to the King James Bible in the Joseph Smith translation is to the book of Genesis. Joseph, son of Jacob, and sold into Egypt, prophesies the coming of Joseph Smith, a descendant of Joseph from the Bible, and thus the fruit of his loins. And this is chapter 20 and 22 uh, of the book of Genesis in Joseph Smith's translation. He essentially does the same thing that he does in the book of Mormon which is have uh, Joseph out of Egypt saying that, hey, there shall be a prophet in the future. His name shall be Joseph. He shall be a son of another man named Joseph. And I'm just going to say, isn't that convenient? Um, anytime you're the guy writing new scripture, pretending to translate ancient documents, 
isn't it convenient that you put yourself into the text so that people go like, oh, look at that. The guy who's supposed to come forward at the end of, the, of all of this is his name's Joseph as well. So there's that. Uh, there may not be much more in this. I think there's one more thing here. And then I've got a few little notes here written down. Uh, parts found in the Book of Mormon. Uh, the Book of Mormon develops many of the themes touched on in the Bible. For example, it includes information about Adam and Eve, the Garden of Eden, the flood at the time of Noah, the Tower of Babel, uh, or Babel, and the lives of the patriarchs and Moses. And I just want to note a couple things here. When you start to examine Mormonism with a critical mind, you're also going to be forced, because in part because of the Book of Mormon, you're going to be forced to examine the stories of the Old and New Testament and the uh, how rational it is for those events to occur. So, for instance, the idea of Adam and Eve 6,000 years ago in a garden in Missouri um, it becomes quite absurd when you understand evolution, you understand where humanity almost certainly started, when you understand um, the time periods that are required for uh, humans to move from the old world um, in Mesopotamia, for instance, or Africa, and to find their way over to the Americas. But what Mormonism does is it imposes that everything started in Missouri. And, and that's just not going to hold up to science. Uh, also, the Book of Mormon mentions the global flood and puts it in the mouth of Jesus somewhere in Third Nephi. Um, if you were to go onto Google and do a search for problems with a global flood, you'll find uh, a, a website, I think, called Talk Origins. And if you go through and just read all the barriers, all the problems you run into for why a global flood just is absolutely impossible to have happened... And now you have the Book of Mormon people, as well as the Old Testament people, telling you that the global flood was a real thing. Uh, it talks about the Tower of Babel, or Babel. Um, this idea that there was a tower that reached up into heaven and that there was an Adamic language that uh, diversified into all the languages that we have today, um, that also isn't reasonable based on our understanding of how the world works. Um, also, things too in the in the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith uh, chooses to uh, have Nephi and perhaps others, I think, too after Nephi, but Nephi sharing multiple chapters of Isaiah. One of the problems there is that uh, biblical scholars recognize today, and it's almost agreed upon unanimously, that there were multiple Isaiah writers, at least two, and probably three. And so the scholars will call it 1st Isaiah, 2nd Isaiah, and 3rd Isaiah. 1st um, Isaiah certainly would have been in the time frame that Nephi would have had access to with the brass plates to be able to bring it over to the Americas. 2nd Isaiah is believed to be after that, but just shortly after that. And 3rd Isaiah is far enough after that it would be impossible, absolutely impossible for Nephi to have access to third Isaiah to bring it along and on the brass plates and be able to have it be part of the book of Mormon. Problem is that at least one chapter of third Isaiah is used by Joseph Smith in the book of Mormon. Again, apologists will have reconciliations for all of these things. That's always going to be the case. 
there's never going to be a nail in the coffin. And it doesn't matter whether you talk to apologist of Jehovah's Witnesses or apologist of Scientology. Whenever you go, ha, gotcha. Apologist will always have a reconciliation. What you have to do as a critically thinking person is begin to weigh how much conjecture is required by the apologist in order to move from what the critic just showed you to being able to reconcile the issue on the apologist side and to be able to maintain faith and believe again. Now, our brains are programmed to want to believe the things that are important to us. It's called confirmation bias, belief persistence. There are certain things where even when people show you a preponderance of evidence that goes against your belief, if it's not super overwhelming, there's a thing called the backfire effect where your brain when you are presented evidence contradictory to your belief, you will actually believe stronger in the thing that you already believed in, that you're comfortable with, that seems important to you. It's why it's so hard to talk somebody out of a belief that they want to believe. Flat earthers, uh, again, other religious beliefs, Jehovah's Witnesses, um, folks who believe that the election was fraudulent. Um, there are hundreds of these things. You know, if you if you see a footprint and you believe in Bigfoot and you saw a footprint and you think that's Bigfoot, it's going to be really hard to talk you out of believing in Bigfoot. Um, that's just the way our brain works. And I may have even said things just now that you're like, but I believe that. I know. We all believe something that isn't true. And the question is, how are we going to make space that such beliefs can be examined in a way that we're willing to discard the comfortable but not true belief in order to wrap our arms around the beliefs that are true, even if it means we have to change our mind. So third Isaiah, um, and again, I'll set that off to the side. There's tons of other kinds of issues. We could spend an hour alone uh, in the stories in the Book of Mormon um, that come from the Bible the use of Isaiah and point out how um, absurd those are. But what I wanted to do is wrap up sharing a few other ideas. So the first is that there are really crazy stories in the Bible. And these are stories that you, if you're a believer in Mormonism, you, you somehow have to reconcile or accept. So for instance, there's Jonah in the whale um, there has been some um, suggestion that uh, that for perhaps is a figurative story. Um, and I just want to note here that whenever the evidence is overwhelming that a story can't be true, you will tend to see once in a while in the church, but certainly among the apologists, they will make an effort to try to give the believer room to see the story as not true. And we'll get into a few examples of those, but you have Jonah in the whale, which again, if a whale swallows a person, the idea that that person could live for three days in a whale's belly um, would be absurd. Uh, try to take a live mouse and put him in your mouth and swallow. Now, obviously nobody's going to do that, but what would happen if you did that? There are certain body functions. There are certain chemical reactions. There are certain things that go on that would keep such a thing from happening. Um, also, if you're in the whale's belly and you're alive, like there's damage you could do. That mouse, for instance, might start chewing at your organs for a minute until 
digestive processes kill it. But certainly within three days, you're either going to be dead or that mouse is going to be dead. Um, there's a story about foreskins with, um, oh my goodness, I, I just I just forgot uh, the, the prophet's name. Give me just one second. Um, it was David. Oh, it was David. And uh, uh, Bible, let's see here. This is uh, first chapter, or sorry, first Samuel chapter 18, uh, verse 27. And um, Saul uh, is forming a relationship with David. And Saul tells, you know, David had just, you know, he's killed Goliath. He He's a warrior, obviously. He's this kid who kills this giant by his sling and throwing a stone into uh, the head of the giant and kills him. And, and that story is crazy, but not impossible, right? Like a kid could have a sling. He could sling a rock. He could get lucky. He could hit some big giant man in the head and it killed the man. Th- that's possible. Um, not exactly reasonable, but possible. As David is then forming a relationship with Saul, Saul tells David that, uh, that I don't like the Philistines and and I need you. You can earn my trust by going and killing the Philistines and bringing back 100 foreskins, right? The skin around the male genitals of the, of the, of these Philistines. And then David goes and instead of bringing back a hundred foreskins, he brings back 200 foreskins. And I'd seen a TikTok the other day that told this story in a hilarious fashion um, I was going to show it here, but it uses a lot of swear language. And so I, I just stayed away from it. But the idea of how the Bible um, does this kind of one upmanship of stories, right? You've got the Tower of Babel, which again is not only Im- impossible, really, um, but you also have that the Book of Mormon and the Bible both report the story of the Tower of Babel. And both of them are being carried into your awareness on different timelines. So you have the Jaredites uh, writing down their records and, and the remember the, that Jared and um, the brother of Jared, Mahanri Moriankamer, they get that story just after the tower of, of Babel itself. And then that record makes its way to the Americas. Meanwhile, um, the Bible kind of comes to us along a different timeline, along a different path. So these stories are very far separated. They're, they're far away from each other, and they both impose that this story is true. And yet the story being true is just highly, highly improbable to the point where it is statistically impossible. The long lifespans, you have Adam living to be 742 years old. You've got Noah living to be 643. Like the ages are absurd. And so that doesn't make any sense. You've got a global flood. You've got rivers turning to blood. You've got talking donkeys. So that when you look at the Bible as a, uh, as a collection of stories that you need to believe in as being true, But then using your critical thinking mind, you recognize that there are bad laws. For instance, having the um, God saying that that, you you have a a rapist uh, marry their victim, 
uh, as part of recompense to the father, as if women are objects, which is often throughout scriptures. And it's, if I'm going to believe in a God, I just can't have him treating women as an object and men uh, having the use of them as their property. Uh, so you have bad laws, you have horrible logistics in terms of numbers of military forces or the number of Israelites who left Israel. Uh, you have the absurd occurrences such as the talking donkey and um, the foreskin story. So when I look at the Bible and having read the books that I've read and studied the biblical criticism and research that's out there, you just have to come to the recognition that these stories are myth. Now, the apologists in the church, how do they deal with it? Well, they'll often acknowledge that they take it as myth. Michael Ash, for instance, uh, anytime he's presented with numbers issues in the Book of Mormon or the Bible, he goes, yeah, those guys are just embellishing the numbers. Uh, yeah, I know in the Book of Mormon they said there were a million people in the battle on the Hill Cumorah, but but that's just not true. They're just embellishing the numbers, right? So again, notice that the the text says one thing. And the apologist comes in and adds some allowances. He adds some conjecture. Uh, so they acknowledge that they take it as myth, but then they refuse to wade all the way in. So when you watch apologetics, there are a thousand and probably thousands and thousands of issues in Mormonism. With each one of those issues, the apologist wants to isolate that issue and come up with a specific way in which to answer that problem. The trouble is that when you look at all the problems collectively uh, and hold them um, responsible to each other, you will recognize that the apologetic solution to one problem actually causes the contradiction in another issue. And the apologists don't want you to deal with all of it at once. It doesn't work very well when you do that. So what they want you to do is just isolate an issue here, isolate an issue there, isolate an issue there, and they will have a specific answer for that issue. So for instance, in translation of the Book of Mormon, and I'm going back to it because it's an easy example to pull from, um, there are certain issues that require a tight translation. Uh, the Book of Mormon translation is told to us as if Joseph puts, uh, you know, sees these words. Uh, on the Urim and Thummim, a.k.a. in a hat with a seer stone. Notice that story changed. Um, but notice that he gets specific words, and then uh, they would say back the word and spell the word, and he would say correct, and then they could move on. But then there are other issues where it says horse, and they're like, yeah, but maybe it wasn't a horse. Maybe it was something else. And so in certain places in the Book of Mormon translation, apologists need it to be a tight translation. And in other places, they need it to be a loose translation. But they want you to isolate each of those issues and deal with them one-on-one -on -one so that they can impose a tight translation here and a loose translation there. When you look at all these problems collectively, what you come to realize is that the apologetic answers don't hold up if you are forced, and you should be, to use that logic in all the other places. Um, when the Book of Mormon imposes biblical stories that are absurd as historical, apologists add conjecture and allowances, imposing things like the Jaredites as figurative. If you want to see an example of this, just recently, John DeLynn interviewed Patrick Mason. 
Patrick Mason is a super smart guy. Uh, he is the, I think the Mormon chair at Claremont university and Patrick does a multi-hour interview with John DeLynn. When John DeLynn poses questions about the tower of Babel, Patrick Mason uses the apologetic argument that the Jaredite stories that they brought with them about the tower of Babel, of Babel about Jared, about the brother of Jared, Mahanri Moriankamer, those stories are myth. And then somehow Mormon and Moroni, you know, get the records uh, because I think it's Alma, the younger, perhaps who goes on a mission and ends up getting those records to begin with uh, Elmer, the elder, I'm sorry, uh, the first Alma and he gets the records. And by the time he gets to Mormon and Moroni, they're condensing these records and putting the things into the book of Mormon. And what Patrick does is he has Mormon and Moroni believing the Jaredite stories to be literal when in reality, they are not, they're figurative or myth. And that gives Patrick Mason the room to go, the Tower of Babel is not a true story. I don't have to accept it and believe it. But again, Patrick's not going to go dive into it far enough to deal with how that story came along two different timelines and to deal with the repercussions of the Jaredite narrative not being real story and what that means for the Book of Mormon um, also, because it's in a language they wouldn't be able to read unless they use their Urim and Thummim. So you would have God who's giving them the ability to translate these mythical stories and allowing them to believe that they're true. And then it also has other historical ramifications as well, which we won't do here. But if you sit down and you go read the Book of Mormon and read the narrative off the Jaredite plates, and then accept that it's myth, start to think about all the repercussions that that has. You'll notice that apologists only retreat as far as they have to, and that they stay at distance from dealing with the repercussions head on because it isn't conducive to faith. So for instance, in the interview with John DeLynn, Patrick Mason says, I don't really want to get into the specifics of these issues. I don't want to solve them. And notice what John does. John goes like, why wouldn't you? There are tons of people out there with doubts. There are tons of people out there losing their testimony and leaving the church. If you have good answers, because it doesn't seem like anyone else does. If you have good answers, why wouldn't you want to help people stay in the church? And Patrick basically goes, look, I'm not a historian. It's not my job. I'm not interested in that. It's not the thing I feel called to do. But notice what he's doing, which is I don't want to get close enough to these issues that if you walked my logic out, it would fall apart. So they stay at distance because it isn't conducive to faith. But notice church leaders in the past uh, Joseph Fielding Smith and Bruce R. McConkie said the earth is 6,000 years old. Jeffrey R. Holland said Adam and Eve are real people in a real garden in, in Missouri with a real fall. President Nelson said that macroevolution is impossible and contrary to God's plan. There are all of these tangents that must be kept at distance from each other so that the apologetic responses can hold up. But when all issues are permitted to inform each other, the faithful way is not only less than the most rational answer, 
it becomes absolutely absurd. Then there's other tangential uh, issues. For instance, we talked about the Bible revision, plagiarizing from Adam Clark's commentary. We also need to recognize that we live in an age of verifiable history. We have journalists and media, newspapers, eyewitness accounts. We have phones and tablets that can record people. We have cameras, um, body cams on police officers. Like the ability when an event happens, unless you're all by yourself, the ability for the people around you to verify that the event happened the way you said it did, we live in that age. Notice that when you go back to an age of unverifiable history, the Bible time, that we don't have anybody in that time other than the people who are saying like, yeah, like my name's Abraham and this is what happened. There isn't anyone else to go like, "Mm, no, that's not real. Um, And so notice in the ages of unverifiable history, the sorts of stories that you get, they are so extravagant, so irrational. They violate science at every turn, right? Then you get into an age of somewhat verifiable history. Notice Mormonism. As it comes up in uh, 1830, there are newspapers around. There are critics who are also writing their uh, accounts of what happened down. Notice even in an age of semi-verifiable history, how extravagant and absurd and irrational some of the stories that come out of that age are. And it should cause you to pause and then look back at the age of unverifiable history and recognize like, oh, in that age that is even less verifiable, it would be reasonable to expect that false but put across as true stories that how many of those would come forward, such as a global flood, Tower of Babel, talking donkeys, 200 foreskins. Realize then as you move forward, right, into what is today a modern age of verifiable history where if any event occurs with 10 or more people, we have some ability to go like, "Mm, yeah. And notice any time, that that happens now in this modern age when people have their iPhones and have the ability with newspapers and other other things. Notice that extravagant, embellished um, stories that seem absurd are almost not able to be put across. Now we've got Photoshop. There's other ways that people can still do things. But if I were to say, yeah, a dragon came into my backyard and he, he, he walked around for 20 minutes and then he flew away, like nobody's going to believe that because we all know inside our head in 2022 that that shit is kind of crazy. And so you sense like in ages of unverifiable history, what kinds of stories we could expect in ages of semi-verifiable history, what sort of stories we can expect. And in the modern age of 2022, what kind of stories we can expect? And so Mormonism puts itself across as having uh, crazy, absurd stories, but yes, they're true. You should believe them. And it even goes so far to say it has magical power, such as priesthood that can do healings. And if we go back to the 1830s, we hear of a few remarkable healings. But in 2022, nobody's getting their ear restored like Jesus did. Nobody's born without an arm and get a blessing and there's an arm back. People get healed from common colds and the flu. 
And most of the people who have terminal cancer, um, I should say it differently, almost everyone who has cancer that 97% of people die from, even when they get blessings, 97% of people die from them. We can do studies, for instance, where we could go into a hospital in a in and take three different wings of a hospital that have terminal patients that are similar in uh, what they have and the likelihood that they will die from. And we could send an atheist down one hall, we could send a Catholic down the other, and we could send a Mormon uh, down the third hall. And we could give everybody blessings. And somehow inside your head, you intuitively understand that there wouldn't be any better results in one hallway than the other two, that the atheist would be just as successful. Um, and that applies to this idea of these fan, uh, fantastic stories that are just absurd. We intuitively recognize that that couldn't happen in today's age, but somehow, sorry about that. Somehow we allow it to be true in our heads for some other age long ago. Like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm somehow Adam lived to be 742 years old. The reality of that though, today you go like, no, that's absurd. Nobody's going to live really past the age of 120 or so. Um, most people live the average age. I think today is 77 years old and, and some people get a little beyond that. And once in a great while, there's a person here or a person there who gets to be 111 or 109. It, it just is impossible for the human body to last that long. And there's science behind it. Mormonism would say, no, no, you go back and there wasn't any sin in the world. And so uh, our bodies weren't corrupted. And that just violates rational, critical thinking at every turn. That's not all the issues. There are uh, other things. Um, there are mistakes uh, in the Book of Mormon uh, in its connection to myth stories. We mentioned the Tower of Babel. We mentioned the global flood. There are other things in there as well. There are mistakes like Joseph Smith thinking that Elias and Elijah were different people. There are things like Joseph Smith imposing that patriarchs and evangelists uh, from the Bible is the same thing, that a patriarch in the modern church and an evangelist in the New Testament is the same calling. That's not true. You can go research that idea and you'll find that Joseph Smith, excuse my French, was talking out of his ass. There's also misinterpretations out of ignorance where Joseph Smith attempts to use Isaiah chapter 29 or Ezekiel chapter 37 in order to uh, reinforce uh, faith in the Mormon narrative. But when you go to understand what those stories are actually saying and what their interpretation actually is within the context of their day, based on almost unanimously all biblical scholars, you recognize like, oh, Joseph just took a story, twisted it a little bit, and had it mean something within his own paradigm. You also have the plagiarisms of Matthew and Luke to create the book of Moses. You have plagiarism of other places in the New Testament in order to have some Book of Mormon figure say the same thing. So, for instance, there's places where Moroni quotes Peter or quotes Paul from the New Testament. And that in and of itself is problematic but then to have certain translation errors carried over. 
So the question we'll kind of finish with is how do I deal with this? How do I step into this space and begin to think with a critical thinking mind? Like, look, I'm a believer in Mormonism. I want to believe in Mormonism, but I also want to chase down the truth. And if Mormonism is so absurd that I'm simply believing in a false narrative and thinking it's true, just like the diehard Jehovah's Witness or the diehard uh, Scientologist or the diehard flat earther. I don't want to be those guys. I want to be able to think rationally about my beliefs. And if I believe in bullshit, I want to deal with it. If that's you, then here's my suggestion. Go read other religious texts. Go read the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, the Vedas, the Kojiki, the Tao Te Ching, the Book of Shadows, the Avesta. Read other religious texts noticing how they use uh, fantastic stories of extravagant happenings that your brain immediately recognizes is not real because it's not your religious text and you're not emotionally uh, tied to it. You're not, you don't feel any loyalty to the Bhagavad Gita. So when there's a talking deer, it doesn't bother you. But when you read the Bible, you're like talking donkey. Yeah, that has to be true. So you start to sense by reading other religious texts that there are other ways in which other people have seen the world and tried to describe it and tried to pass down ideas through storytelling and myth. Second, read The Power of Myth by Joseph Campbell. Read Sapiens by Yuval Harari. Read Civilized to Death by Christopher Ryan and Seselda Jetha. Try to grasp that your sacred myths, um, have them sit alongside all the other myths of all the other traditions that you allow yourself to take in. And start to understand the why and how humans create stories in order to get human beings in groups to collaborate, in order to get them to be kind to each other, in order to get them to cooperate and to work on common goals and agendas. That myth stories aren't true, but they allow people to pass on truths. And then in light of all of that, ask yourself if the best answer, regardless of whether it is the answer you want, is that it is almost entirely all made up, just like the 10,000 other religious myths and sacred text that you do believe were made up. In other words, set your believed myth stories, the ones you think are true, set them next to the myth stories of all the other traditions you're willing to permit yourself to observe and take in and learn about. And then ask yourself if your myth stories are just as much myth and made up and unbelievable in the same way that you already intuitively grasp that all the other traditions are untrue. You already recognize the Bhagavad Gita is a collection of, of myth stories. You don't believe it. And once you take in it and a hundred other texts and, and myth traditions, can you sit with how your myth tradition is just like those? And with that, we have covered the Bible, 
with a recognition that there are so many problems with all the connections the Bible has to Mormonism that you are free to continue to believe it. You are, con- you are free to continue to believe that Mormonism uh, has in a true way incorporated the Bible into its history and its doctrine, its theology, and into its parlance. You're free to do that, but not without at least acknowledging that to do so is irrational and absurd. Folks, just FYI, it's 9-14, September 14th of 2022. It's my birthday. I turned 44 today. Uh, Folks, you can check out more about our podcast at mormondiscussions.org or mormondiscussionpodcast.org or the website that's on the screen right now will take you to just my particular work, mdpodcast.org. Folks, if you like this series, we are a nonprofit 501c3. Our goal is to give people enough information that they can start making informed decisions about how they navigate religion and specifically uh, high demand fundamentalist religions and more specifically Mormonism. Folks, if you like these videos, would you please uh, make a donation? You can go to any of our websites and click the donate button at the top. Each website, so we have 11 podcasts and 11 podcasters. Uh, I am the executive director of Mormon Discussion Incorporated, and we have uh, 10 other podcasters besides me and 10 other podcasts besides the one that you see this podcast on. If you would please support our programs, our, our goal really is to help people so that you are free to make informed choices, whether you continue believing or whether you, you, whether you stay, whether you leave, whether you, whether you deconstruct your belief, that doesn't matter to me. It really doesn't. Um, I, my goal really is for you to have enough information that you can make informed decisions about how you navigate your religious belief. And if people choose to leave or stay, knowing all the data, knowing the complexity, knowing the messy issues, and knowing the information on all sides, I'm good no matter what decision they make. Folks, please visit our websites, make a donation, help us keep all of this going. We've been doing this now for 10 years. We started with just one podcast and we are now into 11. We've had other podcasts that along the way that have dropped off, uh, but we currently have 11 running podcasts going. Uh, So I hope you're enjoying all of the programming. And uh, for folks who are regular followers, you're going to love Mormonism Live tonight. Hope to see you there. Have a great day.